Welcome to the inaugural episode of Resilience in the Shadows, the podcast by Tentmakers. I'm your host, Alex Payton, and I'm joined by my co-host, Letitia Payton. Today, we embark on a powerful journey guided by the inspiring resilience of an individual whose commitment to advocacy and prevention has shaped the landscape of child sexual abuse awareness. Join us in extending a heartfelt welcome to our esteemed guest, Jody Ploche. Jody's story is not only one of survival, but a testament to the strength that emerges from the shadows. As a survivor of abduction in 1984, a Louisiana State University graduate, and an advocate deeply involved in violence prevention, Jody brings a wealth of experience and insight to our conversation today. Jody's impact extends far beyond his hometown of Baton Rouge. His roles as a sexual assault counselor and supervisor of community education programs at the Victim Services Center of Montgomery County, along with his national recognition as Survivor Activist of the Year, illustrate the depth of his dedication. Jody has become a beacon of hope and understanding through events like the White House Conference on Missing, Exploited, and Runaway Children, and appearances on renowned TV shows like Geraldo, Oprah, and The Montel Williams Show. As the author of Why Gary Why, the Jody Ploche story, his written work, adds an additional layer to his impactful contributions. Jody currently serves on the advisory board of Tentmakers of Louisiana, and we are honored to have him here today. Our conversation will delve into the shadows, exploring not only Jody's personal journey, but also the critical topic of grooming and child sexual abuse, shedding light on the path toward healing, understanding, and positive change. Let's dive into this conversation with Jody Ploche on resilience in the shadows. So Jody, maybe you need to give us a little bit of background about what happened to you, just very short, just so our people who are not familiar with your story will know and understand where you're coming from and your history. But we would like to talk about the grooming process and the initial stages of grooming when you were a child and being groomed as a child from that point of view. I can speak to it as a mother, but I can't speak to it as you know a child. So if you'll give us some insight there on being groomed by a predator. All right, so for those who are unfamiliar with my story, when I was in fifth grade, my mother enrolled me in karate. She enrolled me, my younger brother, my older brother, and a family friend enrolled their son too. And so we started taking karate from a man named Jeff Doucette, who was a predator, he was a pedophile. And he eventually not just only groomed me, but he groomed my family. He put on this front that he was this really nice, fun guy. He would take us to the movies. He would take us to the mall. We'd go to the arcade. He'd give us money. I mean, he was a really fun guy to be around, but that was all just so he could take advantage of me. So after a couple months, um, he started testing my boundaries. That's like the first step in the phases of sexual abuse. Um, And that was just like a little subtle touch that he would see how I respond to tickling or looking back, I think it was started whenever we would start stretching at karate, he would like make us do a split. And then he'd like, Oh, you're, you know, you're growing tight. And, you know, and then he'd start, you know, making it where it wasn't uncommon for him to be touching somewhere around between my legs. And, um, the first time it came to me when I was a child, I was driving a car. He was like, he had a 280 ZX. It was a stick shift. And he was like, who wants to drive the car? You know? And we're like, Oh, we do, we do. And so, you know, I'm driving the car, he's got his hands in my lap, and all of a sudden I'm like, whoa, wait, whoa, he's, well, that was him just testing my boundaries to see how I respond. Eventually I passed the test, and it went on to where he was, uh, you know, raping me every day and performing oral sex with me every day, and 
That went on for about a year. Eventually, he kidnapped me. He took me from my house in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Um, we took my mother's car, actually. He borrowed my mother's car and took it to Port Arthur, Texas. Then we caught a, a bus to from Orange, Texas to Los Angeles, California. Then, you know, he wanted to go to Disneyland, so we went to Disneyland and in Anaheim, and we got a room at the Samoa Motel, which is now the America's Best Value Inn, and... Eventually, he was arrested. Once he was arrested, um, I was brought back. It was, this was 1984. I was brought back March 1st, 1984. I flew into New Orleans Airport. Um, two weeks later, or a little over two weeks later, on March 16th, um, 1984, Jeff and two police officers were flying back from Los Angeles, and my father had gained knowledge from someone who worked at the news station because they had done a story about me being returned back from New Orleans, they had news cameras when I was in New Orleans. Well, they sent the news cameras to the Baton Rouge airport to do a follow-up story. And my father, with that knowledge, you know, disguised in a, a baseball cap and sunglasses, a, a gun in his boot, a 38 snub nose revolver, um, he decided that uh, the world wasn't meant for either him or Jeff because my father figured he was going to get killed. But he took that gun, and when Jeff came walking by, my father turned, shot him one time, hung up the phone politely, and um, was arrested. Eventually, he uh, pled no contest to manslaughter and was sentenced to uh, five years probation and 300 hours community service. So he, he never went to jail for the public murder of my karate teacher and abuser. So how did Jeff come into your family? Like, what was the, I know it was through karate. Did they know him before you started karate? I mean, how, how no, did actually, that relationship start? We started taking karate from another guy named Rick. And we had one session with Rick. Then we showed up for our second session with Rick. And then Rick never showed back up. And so my parents had paid the, you know, whatever the money was for 10 sessions to take these karate lessons. And the organization Campfire, through, through my elementary school, they turned our names over to Jeff because Jeff had an up-and-coming karate you know, studio. And so he was wanting students. And so that was a perfect match. And so Jeff was going to honor Rick's commitment of the final 10 sessions and if we liked it he would give us a, a deal to keep taking karate um jeff had what was called a fighting team he had a group of kids that would train and they would travel around and go to karate tournaments like the karate kid <clears throat> so one night he asked my mother if he could uh take us to the movies because we were they were going he said <clears throat> normally before we go on uh karate trips we get, we'll go to the movies we'll go out to dinner so we went to see this movie called They Call Me Bruce. And it was a, you know, about Bruce Lee. It was kind of like a, it was a terrible movie. I, don't, I remember not really liking it. But after my cousin was having a birthday party at Chuck E. Cheese, and my mom and dad and my sister, they were going to my cousin's birthday party at Chuck E. Cheese. So after the movie, Jeff took the karate team over to Chuck E. Cheese. So that's kind of how he kind of introduced himself to the family. I mean, we're at, I mean, at Chuck E. Cheese. I'm in fifth grade. I mean, that's, that's a great time. And so that's kind of how he kind of introduced himself to the family and got to know, uh, you know, my aunts and uncles, my cousins, my parents. And it got to the point to where he'd be invited over on Saturday nights when we were having, uh, you know, family nights and playing. It used to be, I want to say password. Eventually it, it morphed into Trivial Pursuit, but we'd play board games and just have people over and watch the football. And Jeff would come over and, and be part of that. So he just kind of worked his way into the family. Um, just by, at the time, being a fun guy. 
did anybody check or even think to check about his background before coming to karate, before even, you know, they said, oh, well, this is great because now we have somebody to well, take on. But did anybody ever think about checking his background, where he came from, his qualifications? Before we even went to the, the movies, my mother called her brother who worked for the sheriff's department and said, can you run a background check on this guy? And my uncle claims that he did and said that there was really no signs. <clears throat> but I believe, I personally believe that he didn't. Because <clears throat> if he would have, I think Jeff had some like Grand Theft Auto um, in Lake Charles or, or Sulphur or, or, or that kind of, you know, western part of the state. And I think that would have shown up had he looked. But I don't think he looked. But my mother did actually ask to run a background check on him to make sure that, you know, we weren't going with some predator. And Jody, um, one of the things that I think is is really important here too with grooming, <clears throat> did Jeff look just like a normal guy, like just a normal good guy, like just from from appearance wise? Did he just look like the everyday Joe? Was there anything that that any way that he presented himself? Of course, now looking back, you, you know, you might be able to identify, but just to the normal person at that time, without that knowledge, was there anything just outwardly emanating from him that would say this guy's a predator? Well, see, that's kind of, I don't want to say a myth, but, you know, Jeff didn't have, you, know, you couldn't see his horns, yeah. but he had them. But, uh, you know, you think that it's going to be someone who is like this, you know, creepy, dirty, nasty, you know, man on the street, you know. But, no, he, he was just an average guy. He was, you know, Jeff he had karate uniform on, his gear, his black belt. He just came, he pe came along as just yeah. a normal person. And when, during the grooming process at any point, um, when he latched on to, was did he just latch on to you? Was it a specific group of boys? And if he did just latch on to you, did he use, did he did he identify you as quote unquote special or better than the rest? What are some what are some tactics? You know, did he use any of those tactics at the time? I I at the time was his preference. Like I was his Emmanuel Lewis, his Macaulay Culkin. Um, okay. He did have another kid that he had been abusing that was a year older than me, but that kid aged out. And, and what aged out is, for those who don't know, is pedophiles have a particular age range. They like prepubescent boys. Jeff's was, you know, between, you know, 10 and 12 or, you know, 9 and 11. And I almost said a guy's name. <laughs> so this, this kid, he had, he had started developing. And so once he started developing, he aged out. So Jeff moved on from him to me, but then he'd make us spar each other in, in karate practice. And this dude's beating my ass. And I don't know <laughs> why he's so angry at me, but that's why he was kind of jealous. And it's, it's a weird dynamic to think that. Um, and there's another kid that was older than the kid I'm talking about. I've never met him. Um, we've had some correspondence, but I know Jeff loved him and gave him all that special attention. Now, I do believe that he Jeff probably had some side pieces. I think Jeff had other kids that weren't his favorite that were probably next in line. But, you know, I mean, he kept his options open. That's just my belief. I'm not 100% certain about the yeah. younger kids. I know I, I, the other day um, we were at my brother's house and we were – I think he had cooked a steak or something, and he had mentioned something about, oh, I like big meat, and, and his wife made the joke, oh, you like big meat? Yeah. And I said, well, you were next. So yeah. <laughs> so it's something that we, we joke about. We don't talk about it all the time, but, you know, but 
and it's a, it's I'm joking, but it's true. My yeah. little brother yeah. literally would have probably been next in line if I would have aged out. Yeah. So were there any other boys that came forward even after you know after you became very public? Were there any other ones that came forward that you know of or that you've spoken with? I mean, we don't need names. But. Not to this day, no, no one ever came forward. But again, <laughs> Jeff confessed to the the two older boys that I didn't mention, but I've talked about. He confessed to them on the he confessed about molesting them on the plane ride home. So the cops had to address that with the parents. The cops went to the parents and told them, but they never came forward, not even after my dad shot Jeff, um, to help support. And actually, I, I ran into one of the parents a couple of years ago. They came into where I was working, and I was like, hey, I, I said, I got a book. If you want a copy, uh, I can understand if you don't. And they were like, no, we're good. <laughs> yeah. So you talked about a weird dynamic of jealousy. Can you expand on that for people who do not understand you were talking about with the other boys that Jeff had a, or or there was the jealousy that, from the older boy with you. Um, I, I can just share this experience with me because this is what I know. Um, I had actually an experience with the jealousy. Not that Jeff moved on to another kid, but when we were on the bus ride to California, I'm just you know sleeping in my seat or whatever. I wake up, I look over, and Jeff's making out with this chick, this this woman, and I'm like. What's he doing? And I don't I don't know what his motive for it was. He never said anything about it, but I kind of had a sense of jealousy. Like, what why is what is he doing? Like I, I and so I never had that with another child, but with that woman. And then Jeff asked me, he was like, Hey, you wanna you wanna get with her? And I'm thinking, yeah. But you know, I couldn't say that because then he would have got jealous. Oh, you want to be with her? Oh, you know, so he was just a controlling control freak. So again, I don't know what his motive was to make out with the woman. Um, he probably was digging in her purse, stealing money as he was, you know, kissing her. But, you know, I, I don't know. It's, I, I mentioned it in my book. It's kind of like a – There's I don't want to say it on the, the, the podcast, but, I mean, he had also mentioned that he thought she might have a, had some type of a sexually transmitted disease. And I was like, well, why would – and he asked me if I wanted to be with her. And I'm like, well, why would I want to be with her if she has a sexually transmitted disease? So it was kind of – it was just a whole weird thing in the – as I'm being kidnapped, you know, at a bus ride to California. It was just a weird incident. And I think we have to remind people, how old were you at this point? I was 11 years old. So yeah. you were 11 years old dealing with and listening to these things. Well, you know, it's it's crazy because the Diocese of Lafayette had a, had a similar, um, has had similar instances where um, particular victims around that age, um, 9, 10, 11, spoke about that jealousy and spoke about not knowing necessarily why, but... Um, and and it, it dealt around being aged out, too, that when they were aged out, the abusers immediately stopped going for them and went to their friends who were a year or so younger than them. And they still, you know, they can't even necessarily provide a reason for that jealousy, but they, they still speak about it. They know they felt that jealousy, even though at the same time they knew it was abuse. It's, it's a very weird... It's a weird dynamic. It's a very weird dynamic, and that's what I think, too... Um, it, it's it's difficult to I think wrap your head around for people who haven't been unfortunately immersed in this topic. It sounds very weird. It sounds very unbelievable. You know, right? But when you're the pedophile's target, you get to sit in the front seat. You get to stay yeah. up late. You get the ten dollar bills to go play the video games. You get all the attention. You get all the benefits. So I think that that's where that jealousy comes from. Is because now you're like, well, that used to be. I used to sit in the front seat. 
Why is he sitting in the front seat? Well, you know why he's sitting in the front seat because he's aging you out. And that's one of the pedophiles' biggest problems is when someone ages out, moving on, you still got to deal with this person who might be potentially someone who's going to tell on you. So that's kind of like their biggest problem is when someone ages out. So the grooming then has to continue, or in your opinion, does the does the grooming then have to continue beyond just the physical after after the abuse has taken place and the physical stuff has taken place, do they still have to groom or are they typically confident? Was Jeff confident in what he had already done that he didn't need to further groom once someone was aged out? Unfortunately, I don't know the answer to yeah. that simply because Jeff didn't have that opportunity because I never aged out. That's right. He never lived after that. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Okay. Because that would be that would be. Interesting, because I well, know. No, but they still have to keep up their persona yeah. of being this wonderful guy. The, the example I want to give, because, uh, um, you know, not only do they just groom the kid, they groom the family, but they groom the community. Uh, the best example I can give you is Jerry Sandusky. Jerry Sandusky is a, a college football defensive coordinator. He has this foundation uh, helping neglected and abused children. And ironically, because I lived in Pennsylvania, I worked there in se- for seven years, and Jerry Sandusky, the Office of Children and Youth, were, would refer neglected and abused children to Jerry Sandusky's foundation that was supposed to provide them. And then that's how he was able to take advantage of him. So, I mean, not only was – I mean, this is a college football defensive coordinator. He was known by everybody. So, I mean, he had the whole community – the pillars uh, – I think uh, and Jim Clemente. Um, I love Jim Clemente. He wrote a book called uh, – not a book. He wrote uh, – the club, the Paterno report. Yeah, so the Joe Paterno's family hired him to kind of do an investigation because everyone thought, oh, Joe Paterno, he should have known. Look, my parents should have known, but they didn't. So I don't think Joe Paterno was covering up for Jerry Sandusky. He wouldn't, he, Joe Paterno would not do that. And so Jim Clemente wrote a, a report, and I, I encourage everybody to Google it and go read it. It's excellent. If you want to learn about this subject, go look up the Clemente report. And in it, he mentions pillars of the community. Like, he was a pillar of the community. He was this great guy. No one would believe it. That's why he was able to just get away with it for so long. I mean, he's down in the basement being the tickle monster, molesting all these kids while his wife's up there cooking dinner and not thinking about it. So that that's the best example that I can give you. And, you know, it's relating it to um, sex abuse crisis in the church. It's crazy because, see, these these other people, these other abusers have to become pillars of the community. They have to work for it. It's a lot of work. A priest has does know, not have to it, work. It's already there. It's already there. It's an undeserved respect. Once you put the white collar on, and then not only that, community grooming is easy when you have the diocese telling you, open your house to a priest, uh, buy a priest a beer day. Um, you know, you need to have your kids around priests because they might have a vocation. And then all you need to do is tell that kid, I think you have a vocation. And there you go. He's special now. He can sit in the front seat, as you said, you know, because he's he's got the vocation, he's got the divine spark, right? Um, so it's 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 crazy how you know hearing on on a, on the secular side, a lot of these pillars of the community they they have to work very hard, and that's one of the I think the dangers in the church is that everyone's a pillar, every single person that we're dealing with is a quote unquote pillar of whatever little community they're in. We used to have a priest after you know after the shooting. 
we would have a, a priest that would come visit the family and he would like, you know, go, you know, give my mother a kiss and he'd like try to slip her the tongue. And so my mother was like, this guy's a creep. And I think he was having an affair with the neighbor. You know, I mean, he wasn't molesting kids, thankfully, but yeah. I mean, he was having affairs with women and, and you know, creeping my mother out. So, I mean, it, it, it happens. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 you know, with, with the priest, you, you criticize a priest, you're criticizing the entire church or you're criticizing a representative of Christ, which makes it even more difficult to have these kinds of conversations. I think, and this is just my opinion, I think that my father's shooting and the publicity that it got eventually contributed to the 2002 Catholic Church scandal um, with the Boston Globe where they did the spotlight um, because I did a... I went to a, a SNAP meeting. That was a Survivor Networks right. abused by priests. Yes. I went to I went to one of their meetings, and this guy was talking, and he said the first time I learned about the the Catholic Church having a priest that was molesting kids, where they just transferred him out instead of you know kicking him out, yeah. they just transferred to another parish, made made him somebody else's problem. Was uh, he goes? It was in Lafayette, Louisiana, in 1984, and I was like, whoa! All right, I got to talk to you after this. <laughs> And this guy was a former deacon. So I went up to him. I said, do you remember what month it was? He said, I'll never forget. It was October 1984. And it was confirmed to me pretty much about two years ago. I did a speaking engagement in, in uh, New Orleans. And a woman came up to me. And she goes, I remember that. It was on the news every day. I, I, I watched it. It was in Lafayette because Lafayette was getting the Baton Rouge news at the time. So I'm pretty sure that that kid, the first one that came forward in Lafayette, did it because of the the awareness that my father's shooting brought. So I think that eventually led to the the fall of the Catholic Church. Now, I will say this: my dad was a, a, a Catholic. You know, he did his community service at the church yeah. and at the school. Um, I, I like to say, you know, he believed in eight of the Ten Commandments. You know, <laughs> thou shalt not kill and thou shalt commit <laughs> adultery. He struggled with, but you know, other than that, you know, he was a, he 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 didn't like the fact that he took a human life. Um, he would not change what his what he did. But, I mean, he did have that kind of, like, internal guilt that, um, and ironically enough, the same church that would slip my mother the tongue, he was the one that washed my dad's feet and gave him absolution and, for you know, God's forgiveness for, for committing murder. Yeah. You know, it, so it's interesting, talking, talking about your dad here. Um, it, what, what, and now, I mean, I know you couldn't have been in your dad's head, but maybe just through growing up. I mean, your dad obviously was groomed, too, and so... You know, there had to be a point where he realized that he was groomed and there was that betrayal and that feeling of like, what the hell did I do or what that, you know, like that, that disillusionment. Has he ever, did he ever speak about that? Was there a, was there a moment? Like, what did he, what did he feel when he realized that he had been groomed? Well, at the time we didn't identify it as we were being groomed, but yeah. there's a, there's a, a, a very, I don't want to say famous clip, but if you go on YouTube and look up ESPN E60, type in my name. Uh, it's called A Time to Kill. There's a, a clip where my uncle, my uncle had a tracheotomy, had a hole in his throat. And he's like, you know, um, we went to a tournament in Fort Worth, Texas and fought. Well, my uncle lived in Dallas. So the family was going to stay a couple of extra days in Dallas with my uncle. So Jeff had to drop us off on the side of the interstate to my uncle Jeff. Well, I really don't remember it. But my uncle remembers it very well because Jeff, as we were leaving, gave me a kiss on the mouth. And my uncle, you know, with a hold of his throat, was like, you know, did he kiss Jody on the mouth? I told Gary, that's not right. And, and Gary sided with Jeff. 
And so my dad was like, no, that's just how Jeff is. You know, he's affectionate. He's funny. He likes, loves the kids. And so my uncle saw it because he hadn't been groomed. He hadn't been in that world. Yeah. And my uncle's like, I don't even kiss my kids on the mouth. And I mean, he, you can see he's angry. And um, ironically enough, I, in 1993, I started writing my book. And I actually mentioned that in 93 in my writings. And when he did that interview in 2013, it was almost word for, so, you know, what is that, 20 years later? I mean, it was almost word for word. And that was just my memory of what happened from that event. But I mean, he, his memory was the same thing. I mean, he told my dad and my dad sided with Jeff. And my actually, the reason why Jeff kidnapped me is because he owed a guy money and it was a business partner that my dad was friends with. My dad introduced Jeff to this guy. He owned a convenience store and Jeff was trying to sell these LSU bandanas and my dad's friend purchased 15,000 bandanas, gave Jeff $15,000. Jeff never brought him the bandanas. And so that's what the guy was looking for that money. And it was a, someone my dad introduced him to. My dad was trying to help Jeff out. Yeah. So yeah, um, ultimately you can see, I believe my dad felt betrayed. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So and speaking of the family, do, is there anything that was going on in your family that you believe kind of sort of made it easier for Jeff to slip in and gain trust from both your parents? Okay, I... Uh, the belief is that was the case because a lot of times people go, oh, well, June and Gary split up and then, you know, Jeff moved in and tried to be like a father figure. But that's not true. My parents, they did split up in August of 1983, but Jeff had started abusing me in March. So it wasn't like Jeff took this opportunity. It was just, you know, my dad and my, my mother, um, you know, my dad was a great father, um, probably not the best husband because he, he would. Was a, he was a salesman, so his job was to go out and buy people drinks and make them buy their his product. He's a heavy equipment salesman, so he would get up at you know nine o'clock in the morning, ten o'clock in the morning, shower, get ready, and he'd go to the restaurant at eleven o'clock. Where he'd start you know having beers, and so he would do this all day, come home drunk. And my mother just got tired of someone coming home drunk every night, and so she told him either quit drinking or you can leave. And you know he didn't quit drinking. Right. So do you think there is though in some way? Not necessarily in your case, but in some cases maybe where the family may have some issues going on or something, and that does make it easier, do you All think, right, so if there's a predator? What predators look for are easy targets. And if you have a split home, if you have you know a family with no father, yes, it absolutely makes it easier for that predator to take advantage. Um, I used to, when I did programs, I'd say, like, uh, you know, if you were, you know, in jail, and you wanted someone's pack of cigarettes, would you, you know, go to Mike Tyson or would you go to the little skinny guy? You're going to go for the skinny guy. If you're going to break into a house, are you going to break into a house where you hear, or you're going to go into the yep, yep, yep. So you're looking for the easy targets. And that's why, uh, you know, this is a little off target, but, you know, looking at college females, you know, if they're drunk, passed out at a, a fraternity house, they're, they're the easy target. And that's what's going to get taken advantage of. So absolutely predators look for easy targets. So, Jody, another question I have, and I think I read this in your book, and if it's not in your book, I apologize. Um, but I think I remember you saying, no one's child is that great that sh someone should want to spend so much time with them. Was that, in, was that you that said that? I, I think the quote is, if someone wants to spend more time with your child than you do, then that's a red flag. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, so that's what they do. They, they're like, oh, you know what? Uh, I can bring them home after, you know, baseball practice or in a parent you know normally not normally but i mean might have 
In my mother's case, I'll, I'll do it that way. In my mother's case, she had you know three other kids. So if she's trying to cook dinner and she's dealing with my sister, um, she may have had dancing. And if it saves her a trip, then she's more than welcome. Like, oh, you know what? Okay, you can bring him home. And that, and that's kind of what happened on the, the, the where he was testing my boundaries. Jeff offered to bring us home from karate practice after my mother dropped us off. And that's why we were driving a car. We were riding through my own neighborhood where I still live to this day. And I was steering the car. Jeff's working the stick shift. And in my 10-year-old mind, because I was 10 years old at this time, um, was like Jeff's hands had to be somewhere. They normally would be on a steering wheel. So he doesn't realize that they're touching my private parts in my lap. So he just was just putting his hands where he thought they needed to be. But no, that was just him testing my boundaries. Right. But that's how your 10-year-old mind thought. Because I guess it could not conceive that that's what was actually going on. Well, well, here's one thing. All right, so before I even met Jeff, my mother used to make us watch uh, made-for-TV movies, TV after-school specials, and there was a, a TV movie called Fallen Angel, which I actually just watched it on YouTube uh, about six months ago, and it was about this child predator who was getting kids into child porn where he would take pictures of them. And so the first thing that crossed my mind when Jeff's hands went into my lap was, oh, he's like Howie. He's like the guy from that movie my mother made us watch. And then it was he moved his hands, so it was gone. So it was a gradual progression. Um, I, I liken it to, like, you know, teenagers on their first date. You know, you're sitting on the couch, you're watching a movie with your your girl, and you're like, oh, you know what? And, all right, let me put my arm around her. And then you, you put your arm around her. And then if she leans into you, then you're like, yeah, I'm good. All right, maybe I'll go for some side boob now. And, <laughs> and so you're just, you're testing the boundaries. Yeah. yeah. And, and whenever he was testing boundaries at any point, um, did, did he ever, did he ever have secrets? Was there ever like little inside things that were just you and him don't tell mom and dad, or did he ever, you know, let you do something that that they would have disapproved of or anything like that was other, that other than the sexual <laughs> yeah abuse? yeah no but like little yeah. little things right like no, no he didn't he didn't let me drink and he didn't show me okay. dirty pictures he didn't do none of that but that or taxes that predators will use yeah um he he, he didn't do drugs like it wasn't like oh he you know, here smoke this weed and then so now he's got something on me yeah that's what i but, was but they do do that, that, that yeah absolutely, but he didn't that, you know, I mean, he he was so good at being a pedophile, he didn't have to do that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's crazy. Because, yeah, because that's so normal. That's 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 almost prevalent in, in every Predator story. There was, like, some thing. But, yeah, if he didn't, he didn't need that. He was... there. I mentioned in my book, and, it, and actually Jim Clemente, Clemente was the one who told me this. Um, I think it's drinking... I want to say driving because kids aren't supposed to drive a car in dirty pictures. The three D's he calls it the three D's drinking, driving and dirty pictures. Jeff only did the driving. Yeah. It's kind of funny how uh, Alex and I can relate to this with the, uh, you know, coming in because in the Catholic church, it's the big families that had a lot of sexual abuse. People might wrongly think that, you know, it was somebody who the priest didn't really know very well or a Catholic family that wasn't very involved in the church. But, the opposite is actually true. It's the big Catholic families. And as you said, he was helping out like, okay, well, I'll take him to practice for you. And it seems like the priests slip into these families because they are so big and there's a lot of kids and it's their priest who they believe, you know, is, is a very good man. He's the one saying mass. And I think a lot of times that's, that was their in is helping out with the kids. Helping out with the kids, uh, 
you've got possible vocations, and then you can't also downplay the role of hearing family confessions because they hear the kids confess, and you know, um, you know the the. 10, 11-year-old boy goes in and confesses, oh, I looked at some porn, I masturbated, and boom, the, he's, he's got you right there. He knows you're sexually active. He knows that you, you've done something bad. And even though you know the priest can't tell, quote, unquote, um, I mean, it, you're, you're already, you're, you've already dropped that barrier with him. Even though it's, it's in the confessional, you've dropped, once you've told someone that, <laughs> alone in a room, you know, you, you're going you're gonna to your, drop your guard. I'm, I'm going to tell you something right now, all right? I've... In 1998, I moved to Pennsylvania to work at Victim Services Center of Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, just outside of Philadelphia. Uh, it's located in Norristown. I wrote a book. I do speaking engagements. And I never thought about the priest using confession as a, a, a weapon, mm. you know. So uh, it, it's, it, it, you brought up a great point. You know? We've spoken. Who thought they were rubbing one out when you were talking to them? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it, well, it, it, exactly. And, you know, it, it's crazy because, um, uh, you know, confession's a hot topic, you know, in, 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 in the, you know, when talking about clerical sexual abuse, because, you know, um, the church holds the seal of confession and confession, you know, uh, sacrosanct and you can't, you can't, you can't violate the seal and, you know, those types of things. Um, but, you know, interestingly enough, the, the development of confession, the booth with the separate rooms, that was that was developed. Um, I forgot the exact date, but this is something that you can verify and look up, obviously. But um, the Pope had had to ask them to redesign the confessionals because the priests were raping the women and children, and so that's how you get the screen. That's how you get the split screen, and and most time, and sometimes even separate separate rooms where right where it's two rooms, but it's interconnected with a hole in the wall, um, and and. It's funny because that was the that was the fix to the priest raping and molesting the women and children, but at the same time, it made it almost more erotic. Dark room, you're alone in there with the man. There's a hole in the wall, and you're just dumping out your sins, <laughs> you know. So I would like to address this point because I, when I went to that snap meeting, it was in Pennsylvania, it was yeah. in Philadelphia. When I went to that snap meeting, um, it was a weird dynamic. Because there were a lot of women who were abused by priests, but the news didn't focus on it, and they were like pissed off that you know when no one's talking about the women. So the priests aren't just child molesters; they're also taking advantage of women and other you know and little girls. So they're not just you know homos, homo, homosexual pedophiles. They they're pedophiles along the board, and they also like I said, uh, you know, oh, they're the, rapists. Yeah, and and they're taking they're they're using their power to take advantage of people. But it goes back to what you said, though. They're gonna go after whoever's weakest. If it's a if it's a woman, if it's a girl, if it's a boy, if it's I mean that's if it's a disabled. I mean now we know too, <laughs> disabled adults, even in the diocese of Lafayette, have had have had issues, right? So I mean it's a disabled adult. Even I mean it's you know whoever's whoever's able to be groomed, whoever is vulnerable mm -hmm. enough to be susceptible to that is going to be a target. HBO did a documentary called Maxima Mia Copa, uh, you know, and <clears throat> they had one priest. That was, you know, taking advantage of children. But it was at a, a deaf school. All right? So the children were deaf. They, they couldn't hear. And he would only molest children whose parents didn't know sign language. So that kid could not communicate to his parents what was going on. And that's, that was his M.O. Um, if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. And there's another one called uh, Mel, Just Melvin. Um, that's, a, that's a good one, too. I mean, because he violated every person in his family pretty much. 
And you know, that's interesting that you say that because early sex abuse of cases too, um, it's in the Diocese of Lafayette has a history of this as well. A lot of early sex abuse cases were against um, black girls and boys. And it was during a time where, a, you know, a nine-year-old black girl can't accuse the white pillar of the community priest of molestation. No, not going to, right? Not going to happen. So there, it's, 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 you know, they're going to target those people that are in those vulnerable positions of both social power, mental power, whatever it is, right, that they can have an advantage over. So that's interesting. So, Jody, how can we as parents, um, for those listening, for the parents that are listening, mm-hmm. moms and dads, how can we be more vigilant in protecting our children? In your opinion, the correct answer is be more paranoid about people, but I don't want to. I don't want to say that. But I mean, you just got to make sure that you are extra careful. I mean, I personally wouldn't. I don't have any children, but I wouldn't allow sleepovers. Um, I, I, I would judge a fine line between being too paranoid and not paranoid. But I mean, I would. I would do my due diligence. I wouldn't. I wouldn't allow sleepovers. I wouldn't allow people to you know come ride with me to the store. No, you're not taking my kid to the store with you. You stay here. Um, in order for someone to molest a child, they have to be alone with them. So I would limit the times my child was alone with anybody other than myself. And I think I, I can recall, you know, when Alex is now 28 and he's my oldest child, but I can remember when he was little and we were all taught, you know, as as mamas uh, to beware of the scary people, you know. But that's really, we kind of talked about this in the beginning, but pedophiles are never the scary people. No, it's going to be your karate teacher. It's going to be your Uncle Paul. It's going to be your coach. It's going to be uh, a clergy member. It's going to be it's going to be someone that's trusted and has access to children. And again, I almost dedicated my book to all the coaches who didn't molest me because you know there was only one that did. Um, because I don't want to say that people who were coaching Little League are bad people. Um, but I will say this. People who are around children... They have to, if they're attracted to them, they have to be around them. They're going to put themselves in a position. They're going to be a teacher. They're going to be a coach. They're going to be a a nursery school, you know, bus driver. It's so I would just be wary of those people. Thanks so much, Jody, for coming on, by the way. I hope that, um, I hope that the listeners can, um, take what you've said to heart and, um, and buy my book. And buy, (laughs) yes, yes. Jody, I just want to say, yes, everyone needs to buy your book. They can learn so much from reading it. Um, and But we are so grateful that you serve as uh, on our advisory board for tent makers. And we cannot thank you enough for coming to do this podcast with us. And we hope that people will learn so much about the grooming process and be able to protect their kids. And really, we need to prevent As we draw the curtain on this episode of Resilience in the Shadows, our deepest appreciation goes to Jody Ploche for sharing his story and wisdom. We trust that this conversation has shown a light on the shadows surrounding child sexual abuse, particularly the pervasive nature of grooming. Jody's insights underscore the vital role of awareness, education, and sustained commitment to prevention. Our gratitude extends to you, our listeners, for joining us on this journey. If today's episode has moved you and you wish to support the crucial work done by Tentmakers of Louisiana, consider visiting tentmakers.la. You'll find resources, information on upcoming initiatives, and ways to contribute there. To ensure the continuation of podcasts like Resilience in the Shadows, your support is invaluable. 
By donating to Tent Makers through the website, you become a vital part of the effort to transform darkness into light. Every contribution helps us to bring more stories, insights, and conversations that foster hope, healing, and justice. Thank you again for being a part of this transformative experience. And for those of you intrigued by Jody's story and wanting to delve deeper, his book, Why Gary Why? The Jody Ploche Story is available. You can purchase it through Amazon. Join us in the ongoing journey. And until next time, take care, stay resilient, and consider being the light in someone's shadows. Together, we can make a difference.